Welcome to The Next Step, the podcast for students, hosted by Stint. Welcome to the next episode of the Stint Podcast. This week, our guests are Anthony and Jacob, co-founders of not one, but two startups, Stasha and TreePoints, and co-hosts of a widely popular podcast, The Morality of Everyday Things. Anthony and Jacob found luggage storage network Stasha in 2015, fresh out of university. While the company was booming prior to the pandemic, when lockdown hit, Stasha found its sales slowing, and Anthony and Jacob turned their attention to another opportunity, founding TreePoints in November of last year. Over the course of this episode, you will hear about the journey they have been on with both companies and the lessons they have learned along the way, including their five jobs of a founder theory and the value of social media for a startup. It's always fascinating to talk to other young entrepreneurs, and this pair certainly have a lot to share. So if you're a student interested in entrepreneurship and startups, I highly recommend giving this podcast a listen. Anthony, Jacob, welcome. Um, welcome to the next step. H- how are you doing today? Good, very good. I ain't got a new pair of shoes. I did get, <laughs> I got a new pair of docks. There was a long discussion as to whether I should have yellow laces or black laces. We settled on black. We did. I actually don't own docks. Um, Nor do I. It's strictly not a requirement of working at a tech business, but it's strongly encouraged. <laughs> but we're, we're right by the Doc Martin office and every day I will pass there and so every day I'm tempted, but haven't done it yet. <laughs> haven't yet. Oh, yeah, you guys are in the labs by in, in Camden, right? Yeah, yeah. Have you got a little Camden card? No. Should I have a Camden card? You know that you can get like 10% off everything in the market, right? Including the food. Do you know what's so funny? They, I do this a lot and like sometimes I get like incredibly cheap meals and sometimes I pay extortionate amounts and it's like, I don't really know that there's a formula or a system. <laughs> But yeah, um, I think my labs, uh, uh, my labs quality into the building normally does it for me, but ah, fair. it works. Um, anyway, I'm really excited about this conversation because it's very rare I get to speak to young founders. Um, I spoke to one previously on the podcast and I think it's been fantastic. And so to speak to people that are relatively the same age as me and seemingly as crazy as me, that's a pretty cool opportunity. <laughs> so, um, so first of all, love Stasha and love tree points think they're both absolute genius ideas the ideas that you hear that are like so obvious why didn't i think of that um obviously been an incredibly interesting last 18 months so i suppose would you describe to our students you know what you do um broadly and then you know how has that changed with running two businesses or do you mm. yeah do you want to take tree points i'll take stasha yeah what should we uh ooh, what do we do okay should we, should we start with the minutia or should we start with how... It I like big picture, small picture, if that's possible. Cool. Let's do... Okay, so big picture. We were talking about this the other day, right? Mm-hmm. Founders have five jobs. We do. Yeah. yeah. It's funding. Funding is actually the one that kind of takes precedence over everything else because as soon as a business runs out of cash, it ceases yep. to exist. Yeah. It's kind of blood. But but bear in mind, though, you can, you, know, you can bootstrap a business for a bit, so that can kind of like... Erase. <laughs> funding Funding doesn't even yeah. strictly need to mean fundraising. It just really means Sorting. ensuring the business yeah. has... Cash management. Yeah. yeah, cash management. Yeah. Yeah. Which can mean... it. Sometimes that means, you know, spending literally weeks pitching VCs. And sometimes that can mean just like, you know, keeping an eye on your bank account and making sure you're not overspending. That was yeah. one. That was number one. Number two was... And this becomes relevant as you scale, but team management. So yep. uh, as soon as you bring in even your first employee, there's a certain responsibility that comes with just like making sure that they're 
they're able to do yeah. their jobs to the best of their abilities. And actually, it's something we observed when the team hit, I don't know, ex in excess of like 10 people. You sort of feel like more of your time at that point becomes enabling people yeah. to do their jobs. It's meta work. Yeah, really. it does. Um, and even, I mean, like part of that is, part of that is, you know, what you would conventionally think of as, as management and the kind of soft skills around that. And soft shouldn't be taken as um, undervalued. Actually, soft things are super valuable. Mm -hmm. um, but part of that is, like, to be honest, when you get to a team of even tens of people, just like making sure everyone has the Wi-Fi password, and like, <laughs> you know, little like little things like that. I'd like make sure everyone has access to a card. Make sure everyone understands how, how big is the team? can't spend money on stuff like that. How big is the team? Uh, so we're eleven at the moment. Yeah, pre-COVID twenty down to eleven. Um, we yeah, we'll, we'll explain. Well, it's kind of obvious. Stash is a travel business, but we'll explain more in time. <laughs> um, but one thing I do think from that is that uh, if you think about like a network of people connecting, right? As you grow a team, the amount of work that it takes to keep everyone kind of updated with each other and stuff grows exponentially, not linearly. So we we have before and will continue in future tried to keep the team as small as small as can be to achieve what we're trying to achieve. Mm. Um, I think some good examples are you know there's loads of great tech companies that have hit like huge, huge, huge scale uh, with like relatively fewer people, kind of in the you know hundreds where competitors had thousands. Yeah. But I think it purely depends on like how software intensive your your product is. If it's a fully tech platform, then yeah, you can get a bunch of engineers who are good mates, who have you know good cultural fit, and they can churn out code unbelievably fast, and you can yep. build great value. But if it's more of a tech-enabled business like ours, yeah, I mean, it's hard to it's hard to skip how many people. Yeah. Oh no, yeah, don't. It, it depends on your business model. We were lucky that our business models aren't too business and aren't too people intensive. Mm, um, yeah, you could do a lot with scale. There was so, three so, other jobs of them. Found yeah, just I was going to say the, the five things we've got: funding, team management. What are the other three? Team management, uh, product vision um, is kind of key, and I think that's something you continue to set. Even, <laughs> I mean, eventually you hire people to like product managers whose job it is to sort of build out and develop it. But you, yeah. I guess, at that point, become the voice that's just sort of setting the yeah. broader direction. Well, it also becomes you know when you start to do that, you're handing off some micro product vision, and you start you know at the, at the point where you're starting to do that, you can start thinking about kind of more macro, as in like new services entirely, mm. new verticals, stuff like that. Well, I was interested to know, like, to, to understand why you use the term product vision as opposed to this company vision or vision in general. It's like, is there a um, I suppose product just because to contrast with like, I don't know, corporate or sales or commercial, like product, yeah. I think, I think every company yeah. has a product, right? I, 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 that's, I, that's not too abstract, is it? Yeah, like, I, th I, think what, I think what you're trying to say is that like the others follow from the product part, like, like some businesses will very literally like build a product and then work out what the business model is, right? So it it, it follows that, you know, when you're thinking, oh, how do we scale, you know, it, for example, when Airbnb was thinking uh, about new categories, you know, they don't think, hmm, okay, what's the business model for experiences? You know, they identify, we want to build an experiences product. And then they kind of work out the kind of corporate and strategy you know, yeah. after identifying the the vision. I guess, I guess there is some corporate strategy element where you kind of, We'll have a few contenders and and it's kind of semantics, I guess, at that, no, at that it, level. It, yeah, doesn't doesn't matter overly much. Um, but that's another one. Big sales contracts, um, just selling in general. I think it's always the job of a founder to be at least involved in that process. And I think you tended to see even with like the big tech companies. You know, I remember reading stories of like Larry and Sergey when they were at the stage where they were still flying around on their private jets, but then they kind of 
dropping, parachuting for like major contracts that needed to be won. That, I mean, <laughs> that's over glamorizing it. We're definitely not at that stage where it's like, okay, bring in the big guns. <laughs> but like, um, there's an element of sales that's sort of relevant. Yeah. What is the fifth one? It was on the yeah. tip of my tongue. Um, Hiring. Recruiting. Oh, investor relations. But that comes at the point where you have investors again. Yeah. So a lot of these kind of uh, more and more relevant yeah. as you get more and more mature. But, um, so it was funding, team management, Product vision, product vision, uh, sales, sales, and investor relations. And investor relations. Well, I think what's hiring come under team management. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think I think what's interesting is, um, you know, we you refer to it as founders, and that's what we do as well. It's then when you, I think one of the things that took me some time to get used to was founders are different to management teams, different to board, different to investors, to shareholders. Like these are all different things. There might be slight nuances, and there might be massive overlaps. Are there? How do you see the relationship between being a founder and then, like, I suppose, a job title? So, like, a C-suite. So, like, I, I look at, you know, vision, mm. Uh, mm. managing the board, um, which includes raising money, and recruitment as, like, my three responsibilities. Mm. Um, how do you allocate different these different responsibilities from founders to, to, to titles or two responsibilities okay. or two roles? Well, I think one thing worth pointing out to differentiate a C-suite versus a founder, I think practically the biggest difference is that Founder is basically a title that means significant shareholder and executive. And, and sort of timing, right? That's yeah. It tends yeah. It, it, uh, yeah, obviously, it, in the journey. it connotes timing. But I think the reason why it's kind of, maybe part of it is kind of like an ego thing where some people kind of, you know, even if you move on, they want to use the title. <laughs> but I think practically part of the reason that it's used so often, you know, you'll have like C whatever and co-founder, and then you'll have C whatever, and, and it won't say co-founder. I think the major distinguishing point there is like one of these people has a very significant shareholding and so, you know, is much more likely to be on the board, is much more likely to have a larger say in certain elements. In general, um, it tends to take on more significance again at scale. Like in small companies, you have massive overlap between, I mean, when you've got literally just co-founder teams, they will all be co-founder and C-suite, but it starts to matter. Uh, titles start to matter more anyway when you just hit like bigger hierarchies and actually it helps you kind of like reference who does what. Mm. Um, there's always a sense in smaller teams that you juggle a bit of everything. Yeah. It's kind of the fun. But so to, to repeat this specific question, it was um, how, how do you differentiate between a founder and, and certain C-suites? And more specifically, like who does what? Because, you know, you said a founder can be, you know, if you look, take Airbnb for the example, you know, you have mm. uh, a CEO, you have a CTO. I don't actually know what the third founder does, but I presume he's like a generalist. He just, I yeah, I think he's the designer. Product. They had the classic like hacker, hipster and hustler. <laughs> Trinity. <laughs> Where the hell did you read that? <laughs> Some Silicon Valley blog. <laughs> and so I, I think that like, you know, I think about to our students listening to this and who are, you know, forming teams, university, interested in entrepreneurship. They're going to be trying to set up their own businesses. They'll be thinking, cool, I'm a founder. But founders can have lots of different skill sets. Mm. And that then I think channels into a different role that they could have. And I think yep. based on that role, maybe some of these five things are more appropriate for certain yep. than others. Because you could be a founder and a CTO. And yeah, exactly. you could be a CTO who does all of these things as well, which, you know. True. Be- it's true. There's actually, there is a big distinction between sort of technical and business roles. I think that's probably the biggest delineation. And actually, we've been quite lucky because mm. we started out both being sort of business facing. So, well, lucky yeah. in a way, also unlucky in that. <laughs> unlucky in that we've, yeah, we've always kind of had that like missing sort of CTO piece, but it hasn't, hasn't really held us back in any, in any meaningful way. Well, that, that's, a, that's a great thing to discuss because often there are generalist, you know, business 
minded founders who don't have that technical you know expertise sam and i certainly didn't either um how did you solve that so we solved it well we were we were i don't want to say lucky but the problem that we were trying to solve originally um we were able to find uh like cheap accessible mvp tools for for anyone who doesn't know minimum viable product so in our case because we stasher is a marketplace business uh, Stasher connects you with local businesses where you can store your luggage before and after Airbnbs is typical use case. We found a marketplace software called ShareTribe, which was basically enough for us to kind of get some early traction. Um, I think we raised our first round off that pretty much. And yeah. then and then built like a simple website adapted from, I think like a WordPress framework yeah, or something. Yeah, we did a WordPress e-commerce thing and yep. then we finally went fully custom in-house. Yep. So we kind of we kind of like basically did little steps where it was like something to get enough proof to raise money to build something better to get more proof to raise money to build something better. We didn't like that wasn't always the roadmap. So we knew the prototype thing. We were like, this is just a prototype. The first WordPress website, we kind of hoped we we're like, cool, this is it. And then it quickly became. Oh, how that, naive we were! <laughs> yeah, that was actually a classic example of like yeah. you, you live and learn. Yeah, if we'd have had more technical expertise, we'd have known that wouldn't have been appropriate. Yeah. Um, and then in the case of Tree Points, actually, um, again, there's great MVP tools around. So getting better and better. Yeah. So we built. We actually built the whole website in um, Bubble.io. We actually did that ourselves as yeah. well. That was that was kind of because we had the time because COVID. Yeah. So. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but basically, you know, you you don't need to be a developer to build simple tools to prove your point anymore. And you know, what you need to, to raise money to then build those things if you don't have access to the uh, technical skill set yourself is uh, basically proof points. You need, you need to convince people that you can raise some, well, you need to raise some cash. So you need to convince people that the problem you're solving exists and that people will actually use your solution. And yeah, generally you just kind of like step up. Yeah, um, I completely agree. And having gone through a, a very similar thing myself, I mean, short of the funding situation, but definitely from the tech situation, getting your tech right early on is so valuable. And if you can do that in a way, I mean, what you saw, it sounds like you had a, a very lean operation and something mm. smashed it, to be honest. Um, was it a mobile, have you got a mobile app? For Stasher, yes, for Tree Points, no. Yeah. How did you build the mobile app? So actually the mobile app, uh, I say it's not a native mobile app. It's more of a wrapper of the web app, yeah. uh, but it's wrapped into an app that you can download from the app store. Um, the reason, so there's, there's actually some reasons why that made sense. Basically, for one, there wasn't really any app-specific functionality that was important to the way that you, you that you use Stasher that wasn't available in web apps. Yeah. Um, and then two, actually, we wanted to be on the app store for the real estate. People basically expected there to be an app for some reason. But because of the way that you use luggage storage, if you actually think about it, it's highly infrequent. It's typically from a Google search. Um, the web app was actually far more of a priority. So it kind of like on balance, it didn't make sense to build native apps because people people like them, people download them, but the vast majority of people will search, land on a relevant web page and book immediately and then not need the service again for six months to a year. Sure. I think it's really interesting hearing you speak. And I think obviously we, for, for our users who aren't so abreast with like the startup community and knowing some of the terms that we're using, did you, I certainly didn't have any expertise on any of these things going into setting up Stint. And my decision to set up Stint was not based on, I didn't even know these things existed. Mm -hmm. Was that the same thing for you guys? Did you know what an MVP was? Did you know 
you know, um, even, 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 even how to think and like user journeys in terms of knowing where, where your clients come to, you know, the different ways to get to certain channels, you know, building the right products in response to those user journeys. These are things that I think might scare off a university student who's thinking, should I set up a business? And I think from my own experience, yeah, I didn't know any of this stuff. I've learned it very much. So I've gone, has, has that been the same for you? Um, I think so. I was going to say, I think a lot of life is kind of on the job experience. And I was going to say, I read the Lean Startup like two years after we yeah. went through all this. Yeah. And I was like, huh, we kind of did all this stuff. Like, I guess I kind of speaks to the fact that it's somewhat yeah. intuitive advice, right? Yeah. Like, I think one one part that's intuitive as well. So take the example of you said, did you build apps, right? Um, or or say, say, say it was in the past when we're asking, should we? Um, I think one intuitive way that a lot of people miss uh, and this kind of it, the jargon isn't necessary for this, but you know, uh, I think I think people can have a thing where they call it like the five whys, but it doesn't need to be five. The point is just when you're doing something, take a second, ask yourself why, and work out why you're really doing it. Right. So, say yeah. for example, we're working through this example of should we build an app? We'd be like, we should build an app. Why? Um, because people keep saying to us, do you have an app? Are you in the app store? <laughs> and we don't want to miss the real estate because we could see there was evidence people were searching Stasher and downloading competitor apps because our app wasn't there. I'm like, okay, but why are people, but like, why do people want to do that rather than use the website? Um, you know, we couldn't really find a convincing reason beyond some expectation from PR and similar that people thought it would be there or people had heard word of mouth and expected it to be there. PR was funny actually. We yeah. often we often got said like cited as like go download this great app. And yeah, we're like, we don't have an app. <laughs> so um, <laughs> but um, but basically we that it was kind of through that process we realized oh the the priority here is filling the real estate, not building some app specific uh, interface or interaction that relies on stuff that you can do in apps that you can't do in web app. Which is highly relevant because that affects yeah. the tech decision to be like, let's do this as simple as possible. Let's wrap yeah. what we have existing yeah. rather than take the expensive decision to bring in a native React yeah. developer. And, and I think another- sorry, React native developer. Yeah. Native? Well, yeah. people won't know that. That's specific right. development thing. But um, <laughs> I think that a really, a really specific example to someone who, you know, say a student is starting a business um, that really helps think about the skill is uh, social media, okay? When people make a business, for some reason, the first thing that they think that they should do is make like a is make social media accounts, right? And it's a really good example where you should take a second and say why, like what what is what do I think that this will achieve? And it will make you. I'm not saying social media is not useful, but it will make you realize how and why it might be useful to your business, which will inform a lot about how you should be using that social media, right? So, you know, it say say for example, it was Stasher. It's like we should make social media. Why? Um, because people seem to search that and want to confirm that we're like a real and existing business with some social proof. Okay, that that is very different to say a fashion brand where it's like, we should have social media, why? Because it's the primary place that we will kind of showcase our products and people will learn about us. And also probably the main place will build up a data set to like remarket people to, right? Yeah. And just thinking, why am I doing this? Basically, a lot of people set up social media for companies that basically don't need half of the accounts they've made. And for some reason, it's like, especially young founders, for some reason, we think it's, I think everyone just assumes that you post it on social media and your friends will share it or whatever and you're done. But <laughs> I think it's more than that. I think that it's it's very difficult when you're a young founder to be secure in, your, in yourself. And yeah. I certainly had imposter syndrome for the first year and a half, two years. And I think one of the things that, encourage people to set up social media accounts, do branding, you know, do a logo, you know, do all this, get all the t-shirts, that type of thing. It's because it's tangible. It's, it's, you know, 
your grandparents can see it, your parents can see it, you know, these things exist. And it's like, it's a very good way of saying, cool, I've done something. And like, I think we ranced in at university and so there was never, and no one really knew we were doing it for the first year. And so there was never the pressure of like having to deliver output. But I know that there are people that set up startups that aren't ready to set up social media accounts, shouldn't be setting up social media accounts, but have to set up social media accounts because it's the only thing they can do to show that they're doing something. And I think getting over that, I need to do something for the sake of doing something is very, very important. And once you can do that, and, and, and I think that comes down to like exactly what you're saying, you know, asking the right questions all the time. Often we're given a question, it's not the right question. And we have to go work out what the actual right question we are. And that's kind of what we're saying with the five whys. And I think once you do that, then it becomes a lot more clear. And if you're confident enough, which is so difficult to be confident enough to like really trust your own conviction. And like, you should invest time in trying to understand, you know, your own confidence. I think for me, when I got to the stage where it was like, cool, I'm actually, I'm actually smart. I can actually figure this shit out. Like, <laughs> you know, I don't need to Tell be, you got you to do an MBA or anything like that. It's just like think and have your process and, you know, trust yourself and make your own decisions, your own free thinking. I think that's a very big deal. And getting to that point enables you to make so many much better decisions. And also just recognizing that you're not a miracle worker. Like you could have, a, I read this brilliant book this weekend. It's called The Scout's Mindset. I highly recommend it. Mm. But what, 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 what this lady who, who wrote the book described was Bezos, you know, Elon Musk, these people, if you spoke to them about their company at the beginning, they told you exactly what their chances of success and failure were. You know, when he, Elon Musk set up SpaceX, he wasn't like, this is going to go take over the world and fantastic, it's going to work. He was like, cool, yeah, probably will fail, but I'm going to try and do it. And I think as a young founder, I certainly didn't do this. And most people I've, I've met who are young founders don't do this either, which is like being insanely rational about describing their opportunities in front of them. And this is the same thing. It just comes down to how rationally can you think and how, mm. how obvious can you think? And you don't need to win. Like you don't need to be a miracle worker. You don't need to do all this stuff. And it's like just understanding that the world is much more simplistic and fair and rational. And you aren't just like, you're meant to have a magic wand be like, okay, overnight, let's get this thing set up. And I think that's something that I learned. I think it all links to some of the concepts we're, we're talking about. I think um, it's easy to let expectations kind of run away with you because generally the only startup stories you're exposed to are the ones of like great success or potentially like epic failure, but it's always mm. the extremes that generate attention. Yeah. And not just the extremes, it's the PR from the extremes. <laughs> the the extremes. But, also, but I also think you have to take a step back and look at like, you know, so most people learn from books. But it's like, if you think about, so I think being a young founder is amazing because it, it requires you to investigate things. So like, I don't, I don't really have opinions. I just have a way of thinking. And it's like, whatever the opinion is, that, whatever the opinion that comes is like something that I'll just discover and I'll find. And I think that when you look at, what, what, what's the right word? Um, when you look at the opportunities that we face, it's like, you, you don't necessarily need to, have all your eggs in one basket, do something, know the whole plan, take all the books. You know, every company is entirely different. And every company has like, you could be a, a product manager at a big company like uh, WorldPay. You could be a company like Stin. You could be a company like, you know, that's in a, you know, one man band. It could be a whole different thing that like you spoke about a product manager, you know, the founder owning product. And it's like product can be so, such a variety of different things. And it's like mm -hmm. books and we like to have generalist you know, headlines that attract things. And it's like, all of this stuff makes it really difficult for a founder, especially a young founder who doesn't have experience, who doesn't know the world is so nuanced. And I think that's really, you know, moving away from that is, is really quite important, if that made sense. Mm, mm -hmm. um, anyway, bringing it back to your day today, because I think that's a very easy way for our, our, start, our, our students to understand, you know, what it is you're, you're, you, it looks like. 
what do you do every day? How, you know, you, what do you live this cliche startup lifestyle of waking up at four in the morning, doing yoga, all of this stuff? Yeah. Uh, kind emails. Of well. It's mostly emails. <laughs> uh, there's a, there's a joke that CEO stands for like chief email officer. <laughs> and generally a hell of a lot of business does get conducted over email. Um, especially more so in the sort of remote work era, which is something, yeah. you know, is partly why we're so keen to encourage yeah. people back into the office as as yeah. soon as that sort of all oh, it was because like it was half a joke we sp- yeah a lot of a lot of a lot of stuff is email a lot of external but um okay I think is that day. winning clients or is that you know funding or all the five things all, that you said? all sorts to be honest i mean yeah. should we just so go us, today us, like, us, i was checking what day. i did today so today um i definitely don't get up at five in the morning i do like to exercise in the morning that's uh i, I exercise something we both like we both cycle in i think genuinely just a sort of like life advice i think a little bit of exercise every day just keeps you fresh and sharp mm. and well, sorry i kicked the table there um keeps you fresh and sharp and, and and yeah totally would recommend but no i think five in the morning is a myth well you say that <laughs> actually if we're talking about today oh, you got actually, you actually get woke woke up at five up in the morning my, by... my neighbor was making gross like like kind of like like you know like kind of clearing their throat really loud uh, it was gross lovely yeah. So yeah, yeah, but that's not my normal day. No, my yeah. normal day, I wake up at four to meditate. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I would. I mean, actually, one thing that we strongly believe is that um, people don't have that many like high functioning hours per day, and generally, it's better to run a low stress work environment, both for productivity and uh, optimizing staff turnover. Like, if you run a stressful environment, ultimately yeah, you'll get a couple more hours out of people, but they're not going to be good hours and they'll make every other hour bad as well because they're stressed and they're more likely to like start to dislike their job and stuff. Um, so we actually generally get in between 9.30 and 10. Yep. Yep. Um, and take a, you know, okay, first thing when we get in, stand-ups, so catch yeah. up with um, tech team and then business team. Then generally I'll catch up on my emails yeah, uh, and internal communications, so external inter- internal communications. Um, you asked, what do we do with the emails? It'd be a mix of things, but generally a lot of, I mean, especially because, okay, so to give a bit of context, we launched Stasher ages ago. Um, Stasher is very quiet because it's a travel business since COVID. So we've run a, we've launched a social enterprise called Tree Points and we're kind, and basically because we're on furlough from Stasher, we have a small kind of volunteer team of people who are from Stasher who are working on it. But we do a lot of the sales ourselves still. A lot of that will be via emails and stuff. That doesn't mean that we're literally typing out emails. Like if you are young and smart, you can find lots of ways of automating your workflows. But ultimately, you know, when you get someone who is actually interested, they'll have questions. You know, you, you'll get them on a call. You'll answer some questions over email. There's, you'll, you'll organize the call via email or LinkedIn or whatever. You really have an um, email point. Emails, email. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's a way of saying communicating with people externally. Primarily for it will be sales. I mean, we are currently talking to investors as well. So, but that's also in a sense just sales. Um, the, the actual process is very similar: calls, emails, back and forth, answering questions. Yeah. Today, actually, in the last couple of weeks, we've had some interesting product sprints going on. So, yeah, a lot of what I was doing this morning was just like going over the final Q checks for um, quality checks. Sorry for the um, for the website that yep. uh, actually <laughs> as maybe a bit more of a sort of joke for us than 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 we'll come across but um generally it's good practice to like sort of thoroughly check stuff and then push it live 
and mm. we like really totally broke that with the developer who's been sort of helping us out on this and <laughs> we just we just, live we, just we just push live for fun and we yeah. keep sort of making small changes and pushing live and stressed him out yeah. um, um but it's all it's all good so think- i'm just thinking some product work as well i did um we're doing a podcast with you and oh. then after this i am going to do a couple a little a couple hours of product work as well yeah yeah i've got some work i need to do helping um with Stash, I mean, there's still stuff ongoing, and we're we're onboarding a whole suite of new host contracts that we've we've sort of sorted out. So mm, uh, right. I think the other thing that I can't help but notice um, is that the chemistry between the two of you is incredible. Like, oh, <laughs> no, but yeah. you know, one of you starts speaking, the other one stops. It's like it's it's fantastic. It's almost like you you planned it. Um, have you always? I mean, how did the process of finding a co-founder? Um, uh, now, this is, now this is the most important advice to any young person it, you can cut the entire podcast and just keep this section okay um young student who's thinking of starting a business i have several pieces of advice for you okay um unfortunately you fly in the face of my first piece of advice uh, you, yes you uh, okay. not not you, <laughs> not you listener uh, but um whenever i talk to students and they're interested in startups they are always obsessed with doing student-based startups, like a business for students, right? Uh, It's always like the same kind of two or three ideas, although I can't name them off the top of my head. And ironically, you guys- One will be a marketplace for good things. That's definitely one. For like booking like nights out and stuff like that. There's always something like that, right? Um, And the thing is- The third one will probably be work. the thing is like, so, so ironically, Stint is actually like, Stint actually makes sense. And it's a more unique model that uses student as supply. But, you know, generally, a lot of the ideas I hear, they kind of don't consider the fact that like, you're going to spend ages acquiring people who are then going to churn in two or three years because they're no longer students. And students are just obsessed with it, with doing that market because it's the market they know. It speaks to the fact that people tend to solve problems that they they're familiar with, right? Yeah. Um, so don't, don't fixate on students necessarily think about how it makes sense in the midterm. Um, the second thing is people co-found with their friends, right? Well, I'll, I'll, I'll be honest about our situation. We co-founded with a third person for no better reason than he was a course mate at uni and right place, right time. Yeah. Right place, right (laughs) time. And to be honest, when we started out, we were kind of thinking, oh, you know, we're, we're doing something here to kind of learn a bit about entrepreneurship and didn't take it quite seriously enough that's actually an extremely valid point because we did have that slight it's a mindset shift that kind of happened in the process of raising money or at least for me i remember that was the point at which like i stopped being so sentimental about it and was like we've got serious investors putting a lot of money and we've got employees whose sort of livelihoods at this point kind of depend on us and actually like the kind of sentimental oh this is just a bit of fun it's a learning experience vibes completely shifted into like no this is this is real um but my point there is you should, uh, the point that follows from that is take yourself seriously, have a founder's agreement. First of all, just find a template online that has vesting uh, for everyone, et cetera. We, we ended up sorting out our, our like third co-founder issue like totally fine. Um, but the other problem that we faced there was, so you said, oh, co-founders need to have skill, need to have skill sets, right? You need to find co-founders. If you are, it's okay to be friends, but you shouldn't be co-founders because you are friends, right? If you can find someone who has a complementary skill set or way of working, and you are friends, that is awesome. Because you know, I, I can see, like you mentioned, Jake and I have good chemistry. Like 
I think everyone in our company can see that. And it's part of the reason that we operate so like comfortably, right? Because there's a lot of implicit trust. And part of that is because is on the one hand, we were friends and are, are still friends. Are we still friends? <laughs> and are still friends. But on the other hand, we also knew from studying together that we had complementary ways of working. Actually, yeah, that's quite an interesting one because it's not even... It's, uh, we have extremely overlapping skill sets, um, which you wouldn't necessarily think is an advantage, but actually has become one, I think, because there's so much stuff that's so interchangeable. I think it's... Uh, it's Well, it's okay for two people. Yeah. It's when, it, you, when oh, you have three or four people. Definitely not. Yeah. Definitely not. If you've got... We've seen that with other startups. Like I remember you advised a company once that had like five co-founders and yeah. they were almost all like business people. Yeah. <laughs> that's the thing. So I think the typical... It, it, take Airbnb. Like a, a, a classic setup is going to be three co-founders, two business, one technical, right? So it's typically like CEO, some variation of COO, uh, CMO, CPO, CCO, something, you know, something, and then a CTO. That's mm. like the, so, so two people is just about enough with similar businessy skill sets. Um, you know, especially if, you know, you're, you're happy to, to work together on some of the functions. You know, we do split parts of it, but. No, in our case, yeah. it is useful though, I think, because it does make us very interchangeable to the extent that like, people in the team know they can basically talk to either one of us to, to solve their problem and we'll, and we'll just telepathically communicate <laughs> with the other one. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think the question to finish is if a student listening to this now, would you recommend them becoming an entrepreneur? Yes. And this was another one on, on something that you were saying earlier um, about people thinking about risk. Okay. I think that I'm thinking I'm going to articulate this well, wait for it. Um, if you think about the risks involved in starting a business, the returns are asymmetric, right? So the negative returns do not match the potential positive returns, right? Because say you're a student, uh, I'm gonna assume, you know, you don't have many outgoings yet. You don't have a mortgage. You don't have kids or anything like that. You don't have any commitments. You're used to living on quite a low budget, right? Um, maybe you still live with your family. If not, you have the reasonable option of living at home with your family without that being like a huge knock to your self-esteem because you're not 35 or whatever, <laughs> right? That's a very unique time in your life, right? And if you give yourself six months a year, like people go for a gap year and go traveling for that amount of time, right? Give yourself six months or a year to try something. The worst case is that you have something interesting to put in your CV. You've probably learned a bunch of stuff and you've, you know, you're, you're in no career-wise, you're no different to your mates who took a gap year. Well, I think you're far, you're, you're far more impressive, actually. Yeah, because, yeah, mm. yeah. It's it's you've learned a lot. You've I, but even CV. even in the case where it fails, I I, yeah. I agree with you. Oh, yeah. yeah, sure. Well, this is all talking about if it fails. Yeah. If it succeeds, you're going to do way better than if you'd spent a year on a grad scheme, right? I mean, put put it like this: if you're the founder of a business, there is a non-zero percent chance that you can be the CEO of a billion-pound company within you know whatever time horizon, five years, right? If you join a, a grad scheme, there is a 0% chance that you will become the CEO <laughs> of that billion pound company. It's not possible. At right? least on that trajectory. Yeah. Right? And I feel like life, you get one shot at life, like at least go for the option that has the chance. <laughs> yeah. I just, I think, I think it's interesting because I think the downside point is also massive. I think people have this weird sort of notion. I, I hear people talk about that like, oh, but what about the risk? Actually, what makes me laugh is when people, friends like apply to join startups and they're concerned as prospective employees about the risk. And I'm like, what risk? <laughs> like, yeah. Especially what, what risk do you like in terms of, okay, if, if you're assessing risk in terms of, I want a stable and predictable job, 
and a stable and predictable life, then fine. If that's your frame of reference, it's probably not the right thing to get into. But yeah. otherwise, it's like you said, I think the downside is yeah, the downside so is limited. you look for another job. <laughs> like, yeah. And, and you have good experience. And especially if you're in the founding position where at the very least, it's an extremely interesting demonstration of initiative and showcases like a good, you know, a, a, a good attitude, good potential. I, I really think the risk, what's the other risk? Some sort of reputational damage. I don't think you really get that in the case of failure, right? Whereas no. I think the positives to your reputation of having done something mm. potentially successful and certainly interesting are, uh, yeah, hugely, hugely yeah. beneficial. I, I couldn't agree with you both more. And it's scary how so much of what you said is what I use to try and convince people to come work with us during that. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Uh, guys, it's been amazing speaking. I hope all our students find it very useful. Yeah, love it. No, thanks for having us, man. It's been a, been a pleasure. <laughs>